0: If doctors told us that we would made a breakthrough on COVID-19, we would rejoice. We'd feel hope that we could live our lives again, get back to work, back to doing what we want. Well, masks are a ticket to that freedom. We can help protect others and save lives by covering our noses and mouths, which is how the virus mainly spreads. Until there's a vaccine, grab the breakthrough that's already here. When we're out, it's masks on. A message to help keep you safe. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
1: September 28th, 1972. It's Game 8 of Hockey's Summit Series. The best of Canada against the best of the Soviet Union. After seven games, each side has three wins and a tie. In Canada, the entire country is virtually shut down. The nation's cultural identity on the line. As the Soviets pull ahead after two periods, five to three, frustration mounts. During the intermission, the goaltender, Ken Dryden, says to himself, in 20 minutes, I will be the most hated man in Canada. It was the ultimate test
2: of the two hockey superpowers. Those guys were playing
1: with passion. Everybody knew that it's a war.
2: Hostile, economic and political systems—capitalism versus communism.
1: We're not going to lose. No way we're going to lose. This
3: was for the prestige of the country. We are the world champions. I was like a man
4: possessed. is the
5: hardest game I think I've seen in years.
0: just war. These two teams are going at it. They're
1: not The Cold War. Us against them attitude was exactly what this turned out to be. Welcome to
3: Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. right here we go once again how are you doing everybody my name is tim hanlon and you of course have found good seats still available thank you for finding us it's the uh, curious little podcast as you know that is devoted to on a weekly basis what used to be in professional sports hope you're doing well for the uh, holiday season hope uh, everything is going okay you're staying healthy you're staying safe uh and uh staying sane uh those are all hard things to do these days but um we uh we're with you here to maybe distract you a little bit, and um, let's go back to a, a time in uh, in sports history, and we spin the wheel uh, around into the early 1970s, and as that little uh, intro clip may have given you a hint, we're going to hockey and to Canada in particular. This is a fascinating and fun conversation that we had this week with our guest, Rich Bendel, um, who uh, has written... Uh, not, frankly, not the only book, uh, devoted to this topic. That is the 1972 summit series between Team Canada and the then national team of the Soviet Union, the USSR, back when it was the Soviet Union. Um, I must tell you that, um, not only is this book sort of a a compendium, frankly, of this amazing series that happened, uh, throughout the month of September, 1972, Uh, If you're not from Canada, you may not understand the gravity and the significance and the cultural phenomenon that was this summit series. Um, And uh, that clip that you heard was from a a wonderful and and tremendously done uh, 2012 documentary that uh, was on NBC Sports Network. Uh, The narration, of course, by the uh, well-known Peter Coyote fantastic voice. You've heard him on lots of different things um, from Flagstaff Films and Ross Greenberg Productions. It was called Cold War on Ice, Summit Series 72. And as you'll hear in our conversation with uh, with Rich in uh, just a few moments, he, the author, by the way, of the 1972 Summit Series Canada versus the USSR, Stats, Lies, and Videotape, the untold story of hockey's series of the century. Yes, you can call it that it, it, uh, the, it, the hyperbole is, uh, is earned and perhaps maybe even undersold. Um, and I will tell you, I'll be honest, this is something that was relatively unknown to me. And I, you know, I fancy myself as being somewhat, uh, hip to at least stuff that was going on in the seventies regarding sports, but, um, You know, uh, obviously a lot of teams and leagues we focus on on this uh, this little show, but but also events, things that uh, in the professional sports realm sort of came and went. And um, this is certainly one of them and a spectacle at that. And its origins, frankly, are relatively humble. We'll get into the entire story. And it's it's we've got some great clips embedded in there and stuff. And if you are a Canadian hockey fan of any sort, whether today or previous generations or somewhere in between. Um, you will undoubtedly know this story and perhaps be well-versed in it. Uh, it's truly one of those things, not unlike the, uh, winter Olympics, uh, of 1980 when the United States, uh, defeated the Soviet Union for the, uh, uh, gold medal, uh, well, the Soviet Union, but also winning ultimately the gold medal in, uh, in hockey, right? Um, uh, it was kind of one of those uh, events of like, where were you when, right? You, uh, those games were going on. This is exactly that, uh, but in Canadian form, just a mere eight years earlier. Um, the humble beginnings of this story, as we'll get into, uh, it really kind of revolves around amateur hockey, right? Uh, somewhat, uh, you know, about passion, certainly in, in, in Canada, uh, certainly in, in this, in the then Soviet union, now Russia, um, but uh, it was uh, not uh, uh, sort of best understood. You have to understand this is during the time of the Cold War, uh, communism versus uh, freedom and, uh, you know, uh, democracy and, and things like it. Um, but against that backdrop is sort of the, uh, uh, frankly, the the ultimate hard uh, conversation about which which team and which country is better at the professional version of hockey. And, and in the early 70s, not quite known i mean the the amateur game was certainly being dominated by the Soviet Union at the time uh to the point where Canada wasn't even participating anymore. It was such a, uh, a, a an un uh, uh, just a long lasting uh, sort of run that the uh the Soviet teams uh had uh won just about everything in, in amateur hockey but you know it was always sort of that saving grace that sort of belief that you know when it really came to the professional game, well, you know Canadians can't be beaten, right? Because they are this—it's the the origin sport, if you will, the national sport of of Canada. And you know, if only the Soviets could um, challenge us or play us in a professional realm, well, we'd show them a thing or two. Well, that's a bit of sort of the background of of how this sort of came about. And I'll let Rich uh, kind of let you uh, you know understand the the sort of story. If and again, if you know this story and this amazing month. Of September 1972, when the entire country of Canada—and frankly, it was also in the United States too—there were a lot of hockey cities that uh, uh, had access to these games via the syndication, or it was I think it was on P- various PBS stations. Frankly, uh, especially the games in in uh, in uh, Moscow, the uh, the latter four games. But this was an eight game series uh, that was essentially set up as an exhibition, and it became very quickly and very forcefully. Much, much more. So by, the, by the time of the end of it, it was literally a titular battle for the world supremacy in the sport of hockey. That's that's how much it uh, grew in importance over that short span of time. And it's, it's a fascinating and uh, amazingly interesting story, most of which was completely unknown to me. And I am just uh, thrilled to have this uh, conversation this week with our guest, Rich Bendel. He, the author of the summit series the untold story of hockey's series of the century uh it's a hoot uh and uh i it's the proverbial scratching of the surface for sure uh it's uh, the, there are many many books have been written about it a bunch of documentaries and stuff but uh, uh please enjoy this conversation with rich uh which uh, if it's uh, an entree to uh, an amazing story for you to learn more uh i am uh, happy to uh, be the gateway to uh, your learning of such uh, an amazing uh and uh uh, just an incredible story. Um, all right. Uh, before we get there, let's uh, give you some holiday uh, goodness. We'll give you a whole bunch of promo codes here. We know the holidays are not yet finished. Uh, if you're in the midst of celebrating Hanukkah, uh, in, uh, hopefully those uh, lights and those gifts are going well your way. Uh, if you're waiting for Kwanzaa or uh, the Christmas holiday, uh, obviously gift giving is still very much in your mindset. Uh, And, hell, look, if you're just uh, looking to kind of get yourself a little gift uh, just because you had a tough year, well, look, get your pen and papers ready because all of these great sites have great promo codes for you as well to save some bucks as you buy your holiday items. Whether for yourself or your friends or your family, here goes. 417 Helmets, collectible helmets and more. That's 417-417-HELMETS.com. Promo code seats. 10% off all of your purchases. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. That's the place to get all of your memorabilia and then some uh, from teams and leagues no longer with us. Promo code GOODSEATS at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com for 15% off all of your purchases. Our new friends at Ebbets Field Flannels, the granddaddy of them all. That's my nickname for them. Ebbets.com, E-B-B-E-T-S. Ebbets.com, you know how good their stuff is. Promo code there to save 10% off. Good Seats 10, the number 10. Good Seats 10. OldSchoolShirts.com, P.F. Wilson, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Friends. Great t-shirts, not only from old sports leagues and teams, but all kinds of pop culture artifacts of of your commemorated in t-shirt form. Promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com. Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases there. How about streaker sports, streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture. Great, great shirts, great, great other paraphernalia and, and, and outerwear and uh, not just sports teams and leagues, but all kinds of uh, cultural uh, overlays with sports. Promo code there for you at streakersports.com. Good seats. 15% off all of the purchases there. And last but not least our pal, Dustin Alameda in Portland, Oregon, five Oh three sports, the king of throwbacks, five Oh three dash sports.com. Don't forget the dash promo code for you. There seats S E A T S 10% off all of your purchases at five Oh three sports. Thank you one. And thank you all. And we appreciate you giving them all a try, a look, hopefully a purchase or two. And, uh, we, uh, hope that, uh, we've, uh, help solve some of your shopping problems this holiday season and um, lots more goodness to come in the realm of commerce in the new year for sure. All right, I am done shilling. And now let's get onto the ice, shall we? With our new pal, Rich Bendel, as we talk about the amazing story. I mean, you could not have scripted this series any better than the Summit series of 1972. Here we go. Please, as always, enjoy. You know, hockey has certainly been something that we've uh, we've gone around and around on uh, for for lots of different episodes. Obviously, the great expansion and the WHA, and uh, you know, all, all kinds of sort of stories and 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 whatnot. But um, uh, clearly, um, you know, me growing up in the United States uh, as as a kid in the late '60s, early '70s, I was sort of very vaguely aware of sort of uh, not only the NHL's growth, the WHA's arrival, but also sort of this. Uh, this series kind of thing that seemed to uh, constantly come back, I guess, in and being reminded of it, uh, especially when the Olympics came up, right? Because a lot of the uh, sort of uh, reminiscences, I guess, about uh, Canada and oh. USSR and all that kind of stuff sort of came back and back. It's like I didn't have any sort of understanding about even what that was prior, right? So that's why well, this is really interesting to me.
6: Well, it's uh, if you may be surprised to hear um, – some of the best reactions I got when my book came out was from Americans. Uh, I still remember uh, the first time I uh, was at the Toronto uh, Expo they have uh, for cards and, you know, all kinds of hockey memorabilia. Really. And one fellow, I had my book set up, and he stopped, and he goes, I know what that is. And he comes over, and he's like, I end up finding out, I think it was from North Carolina. And he's like, this is great. And I, I learned all about this series. Uh, Canadians, uh, oddly enough, I think, uh, it's been more of a tough slog in the sense that uh, they they feel that they've heard about the series for so long that they know it inside out. And funny enough, uh, I think people who maybe are not as familiar with the series uh, it, it may be a little bit more receptive to the fact that hey, there's something new out there that hopefully brings a, 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 you know an interesting perspective on it and maybe information that maybe it, it contradicts. Uh, Myths to a degree but it's all based on facts like I didn't you know kind of just make it up in my own mind it was done on research and trying to figure out because to a large degree I, I don't think the series every book I ever read on the series basically talked about it as if it was a singular event with no prior or you know I think people recognize the after but the one question that nobody seemed to ask is why was there a series uh, how did it come to be you know what you know what were the circumstances and that part was really fascinating because uh, as you start to piece it together you find that some of the i call them the, the myths about we knew nothing about the, the you know the soviets is not quite true there was actually quite a bit of information i just don't know if people paid attention to it
3: Well, let's set the table a little bit. Let's put it sort of frame it, because uh, especially for our non-Canadian listeners, right? Uh, I I don't think people sort of fully understand uh, this series, to your point, why it existed in the first place. Maybe you can kind of um, uh, sort of frame this, because it feels to me like this was, you know, a very pitched battle between the two arguably superpowers, if you will, in the sport of hockey. But this doesn't sort of just magically appear and plop down uh, in 1972 out of out of thin air. Maybe you can give us a little yes, bit of exactly. a background and maybe also draw us into how you personally sort of became interested uh, uh, in this topic as well, because I'm guessing, I think, you were a kid around this time, right?
6: I, I was pretty young, and uh, some of the players who I've had an opportunity to meet have been surprised that, A, that I... even remembered it, and B, that I remembered it so well, Um, uh, exactly as you say, uh, framing, I guess, the series, literally, you kind of go back in time to the 1920 Summer Olympics, funny enough, when hockey came into the Olympics, and Canada dominated the sport very much. Uh, It it ended up moving to the winter, which only makes sense, of course, but Canada was kind of the standard bearer for decades. And then the Soviets, funny enough, uh, it was uh, Stalin's son who introduced ice hockey to the nation uh, for whatever reason. I think he had been uh, over in England at some point in time and became interested in the game uh, and decided as opposed to bandy, which is kind of like in a sense, uh, ice hockey soccer on a soccer size rink, uh, with, with the curve stick and all that he wanted and still,
3: wanted... still played actively in places like Kazakhstan and those kinds of places too. I believe
6: exactly. And, and it's, They they knew the sport in a sense, but on a different scale. And uh, he basically said, "We're going to learn how to play ice hockey just after World War II ended." And so they quickly, if you can imagine, within eight years, they went from literally picking up a hockey stick for the first time to beating Canada in the World Hockey Championships that year, which is the first year they ever played. To say it was shocking would be, you know, an understatement because. Canada was the, the, you know, we were the leading nation and who is this upstart, you know, coming in here and not only giving us a, a game, but, but trouncing us. And funny enough, I'm not sure if you were familiar with the game, but they won 7-2, which is simply ironic. Uh, so the all of a sudden you had a pitched battle, you know, the next year we wanted to beat them and we did, but slowly but surely the Soviet, you know, became the, the prime hockey power in amateur hockey, because Canada, as you know, you know, with the NHL, pros weren't allowed to play in the the Olympics or the World Hockey Championships. In some cases, players could get reinstated uh, for World Hockey, but pretty much we had to send, you know, if you can imagine our, you know, the hockey development system, the best of the best were going into the NHL or their farm system. Uh, It was other players, uh, you know, university, uh, senior hockey, things like that, who were available to us to challenge the best in the world. And that worked for a while. But as the end of the 50s happened and we rolled into the 60s, we could no longer, we could could compete, but we no longer really had a chance of of winning at that level. So what ended up happening is in the 60s, the Soviets went on a nine-year run, consecutive run, uh, gold medals in the World Hockey Championships and the Olympics. So in many ways, the Summit Series was, this was going to be the opportunity for Canada to show that our pros, our best players, you know, are still the best in the world. And that kind of led to the pitched battle that was the uh, eight-game Summit Series.
3: Yeah, and and that's, that's an important distinction here because, uh, and, and I think it's, you know, even sort of already sort of, um, uh, we're losing sort of the grip, I think, generationally about uh, people sort of, uh, uh, losing an understanding of of the the old Soviet Union and, and the process by which even the United States was competing, uh, the amateur sort of level, right, where, you know, if only pros... I mean, I think there's a whole generation of people who think, for example, that pros have always been able to play basketball, for example, right, and, you know, the dream yeah. team and all that stuff, but it wasn't the case all the way through, you know, the 80s and early 90s, um, but, but that's an important sort of part of all of this, right, because... This series in 72 was designed to be the battle royale, I guess, on the professional circuit. And I guess this was sort of a a desire by both countries, oddly, to kind of get to that sort of pro versus pro thing, to kind of, you know, sort of like a, in, in a grand boxing match, you know, the uh, the battle to end all battles, right? Um, h- how does this even sort of come about? Because I I, I got to think— Yeah, certainly the Canadians were, you know, angling to kind of, you know, really kind of throw their best players at the Soviets. But I I can't imagine the Soviets, per se, wanting to necessarily, you know, uh, uh, interrupt this uh, sort of perceived dominance, at least at the amateur level.
6: It's a good point. And to a degree, there was, uh, I think, competing interests. You know, it's nice to be kind of considered number one, but... Ultimately, there's always an asterisk about it because say, like, hey, you're not playing Canada's pro players, therefore, you know, how can you call yourselves the best? And 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 I think the Russians themselves kind of realized they, in order to continue progressing their game and elevating it, uh, they'd kind of reached a point. I guess they'd self-realize, hey, we're up to nine championships in a row, but we're starting to stagnate. And in fact, the uh, one of the ironies of the 72 series is they actually lost the 72 World Hockey Championships. In um, many years prior to that, in an Olympic year, because 72 was also an Olympic year, they, they only had one or the other. And if you won the Olympics, then you were world champion. But 72 was, I think, the first year where they actually had Olympics, and then a World Hockey Championships. So they did win in Sapporo, uh, Japan. And in fact, the U.S. came in surprise second that year. And then in uh, the spring, they played and the Czechs, uh, Czechoslovakia actually defeated them and won gold over them. So that was kind of, I think, a reaffirmation for them. We need to challenge ourselves more. And to do that, we have to play Canada. So as funny as it seems, I think they they wanted to, they were ready for it. You know, they've been preparing again since they'd won in 54. They were ready. They figured, you know, we want to find out how good we are against Canada's best. And they, they were prepared to lose uh, to do it. But I don't think they went into it with, you know, without the intent of believing they could win.
3: Well, okay, so... I you know i I read certain sort of uh, uh, narratives about this. i um who do you think wanted this series more i I would think it would be Canada, but uh, the when I read a lot of sort of some of the background, the intimation seems to be that it was that was the Soviets that kind of wanted to make the case. Do I have that right or is it is it speculative as to sort of who uh-huh. and how it came about?
6: Well, I would say, uh, as we've discovered over, you know, again when the Soviet Union existed, uh, the Russians, uh, not to be impolite, but they they can, they can be pretty cagey. Um, you know, they don't always you know, they're card players to a degree. They don't want people to know how, you know, how much they might want or not want something. They knew the Canadian public wanted it. Uh, There was a great desire for quite a few years prior to the series. I found different articles. I found references. I think maybe even in the NHL 1970 All-Star Game, of all things, how they were talking about how Canada, you know, wanted to play, you know, the pros, having the pros play against the Soviets. The players themselves, Probably didn't feel quite the same way, but uh, the Canadian government as well felt the the same way because we, you know, we didn't want to be embarrassed on the world stage. And uh, the rules were kind of, we felt things were kind of stacked against us. We were, there's a number of things that happened in international hockey uh, in the 60s, for example, where we felt we got shortchanged and disadvantaged. So I think it really was, the Soviets knew we wanted to play and they did too, but they didn't want us to know how much they wanted to. So they negotiated basically for the series. They negotiated as much in their favor as possible. And and I guess that makes sense. For example, they they didn't allow any NHL referees in the 72 series. They were actually American referees for the four games in Canada. And then it was a mix of uh, different Czechs and uh, West German referees and, and a suite as well that um, that were of varying levels of quality. Let, let me just leave it at that.
3: Well, you mentioned the 1970 NHL All-Star Game, uh, and you also sort of call that out in the book. Um, it almost feels like that was sort of the, a hint, I guess, perhaps of of the idea of, of having country versus country, sort of, uh, in some way, shape, or form, maybe almost uh, an impromptu maybe template for what would happen two years later.
6: I I would say that's a really accurate statement, and and even in when Canada still had our Canadian national team, um, we had wanted to start migrating near pros, they call them, like players who were in NHL club system uh, systems, but not quite, you know, on a regular on the NHL teams, and we had received approval in the fall of uh, '69 um, to allow uh, said players to play for the first World Hockey Championships that were originally planned in Canada, uh, Winnipeg and Montreal in 1970. But what happened is um, it kind of kept getting bandied about. And the Soviets, I think, tested us. They actually allowed the, the Nats to bring 10 near pros to their Sovetsky Sport Tournament. That's a, a, an August-September tournament they always have, and it still exists today. And they, the Nats did very well. Uh, Canadian national team. Um, and I think they started to get worried that this wasn't such a good idea. And then they also had what they call their Christmas is Vestia tournament, uh, an invite tournament. Canada again brought around 10 near pros and we finished second. And funny enough, uh, a couple weeks later it was kind of announced that, you know, these near pros uh, would not be allowed in the world hockey championships of 1970. And Canada withdrew and said, you know, if this is the game you're going to play, we're not we're not going along with it anymore. And basically said, until we are allowed to use pros, we're not going to participate. So funny enough, the 72 series um, in 72, if if hockey fans can imagine, there was no international hockey of any kind that involved Canada. You know, at at that time, there weren't any world juniors. Um, We obviously weren't participating in the World Hockey Championships. Not the Olympics. There was no, you know, women's hockey, no sledge hockey. Literally, there was no international hockey in 1972. So, this was also a tournament that allowed us to get back into the mix, you know. To uh, and, and it was across the board. There was like multiple interests, you know. Uh, money was a, a big incentive for everybody. But at the end of the day, it was like, who's the best? You know, who let's find out once and for all. You get to ice your best players. We get to ice ours. But funny enough, it didn't turn out that way because, uh, as you mentioned about the WHA, the new league that started that year, we actually lost some players from our team because they were essentially not allowed to play for Canada, even though they were Canadians, uh, because they had jumped this rival league. So we iced the. A very good team, but we did nice our very best, if I can leave it at that.
3: Well, all right. Let's 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 uh, frame that before we sort of get into the actual uh, foundation of this actual series and sort of uh, it's uh, uh, how it sort of unfolded. Uh, it, I think it's important to kind of circle 1972 on a number of uh, on a different on another level. Right. Because um, this is also, you know, this is a couple of years removed from the great expansion of the NHL. Uh, in 67 and uh, obviously recognizing, I mean, literally doubling in size that year uh, yes. and recognizing that there's a sort of a great big continent uh, in both countries uh, to sort of dominate after sticking with six teams for God knows 40 years almost. Exactly. Um, right. And then and then this WHA thing, which we've. Uh, we've had the pleasure of talking to uh, its founder, Dennis Murphy, on a couple of occasions, believe it or not. Still still kicking it at 90, I think, 95 years old. God bless. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Right? But the, the, um, it certainly shows that there's an appetite growing, right, for the professional game uh, in both countries here in, the, in this hemisphere. And um, I, I don't know. I'm just wondering. So maybe you can sort of explain sort of this little rift because – it, we haven't mentioned him by name yet, but Bobby Hall, right? You know, being the biggest name signed away in this new fledgling, not even sort of puck, uh, puck dropped yet. WHA, um, right. he's yeah. he's not going to be allowed to play in this series. Why is that? Like, what? Why? If it's Canadian professionals, why not WHA uh, in that mix? Uh, I'm guessing it's because it was perceived that there's a bit of, of renegade, or perhaps and or the NHL. Had a lock on this uh, this series uh, to 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 bring players into. I help help us set that that tone a bit.
6: Oh, for sure. Um, it, it, there's several uh, I guess elements to it, and uh, I, and a critical element actually is probably the one that scuttled uh, it. But I guess in summary, the NHL absolutely. Did not like the idea of a rival league competing with them. Uh, they were they were undergoing dramatic expansion, uh, and they even added two more teams for that u- upcoming season to kind of uh, in New York for the Islanders and Atlanta to, to, to block out the WHA. So they were not uh, interested at all in doing anything that would promote their their competitor. Uh, but there was another overriding uh, aspect to it, and uh, that. You know, you had Canada obviously wanted Bobby Hull, who was one of the biggest stars of of his time and, and still is. And Canada obviously wanted to have him on the team uh, as fans. And even Harry Sinden, who was making up the team, he, he was going to select him. But the NHL, I think there was two sides to it. One is the... They didn't like the fact that Bobby Hull was embarrassing them, in a sense, by leaving the league. You know, you're losing a star player. Um, they also, and this is a, a lesser known sidebar to everything, which is there was a, an insurance element. The NHL, under no circumstances, was going to insure a huge $2 million contract to Bobby Hull. Because, as you can imagine, his contract actually made him a an insurance risk. And the WHA wasn't really in a position to insure him either. So the, for the Summit Series, the team Canada players, they, they did get an insurance policy. And if, as you can imagine, all the best players of the NHL would total up a pretty fair sum of money even back then. But Bobby Hull was kind of like, you know, who's going to pay for this? You know, who who's going to take on this risk? What, if, God forbid, what if Bobby Hull were to break his leg playing in one of these games? and uh, his career be over so there was several elements to it but i guess summing it up the nhl didn't want to promote their rival they had no interest in you know uh, ensuring somebody and and technically the series itself was under hockey canada the nhl was was not directly involved say in in the organization of it but obviously they were supplying the players and that was their concern. If anything happens to our high-priced talent, who's going you know, to pay the bill for that? And nobody really was willing to. Hockey Canada was fairly new. They didn't have the resources. The WHA wasn't going to do it. And the NHL certainly wasn't going to. So I think in the end, unfortunately, for Bobby Hull especially, because he did want to play, was that it was a series of circumstances that no one you know, was willing to kind of bridge that gap.
3: Interesting and Bobby orr uh, still in the NHL. he was also he was out with a, a a knee injury, so he couldn't play either. So already not looking great for who the the talent pool, I guess that that one would want to draw to this uh, team Canada
6: it, it, absolutely. we like the 72 series is so interesting from many different angles. And and the one being, what if, what if Canada had arguably two of its greatest players playing uh, for them and Bobby Hall could play. He was healthy, he was available, but again, due to the circumstances beyond his control and Sindon's, he wasn't an option. Uh, Bobby Orr actually, he had his surgery I think around the second week of June and he just wasn't ready. He, he in fact, came out for the scrimmages. Uh, he showed up, I think, about a week in the camp, around the third week of August. But his knee kept kind of swelling, and he had fluid on the knee, and it was just too soon. Um, he wanted to play. He continued to travel with the team, and there I have a picture of him uh, practicing in Moscow. Uh, he was still trying, and there was even speculation Sinden was going to put him in the lineup for Game 8, but he realized that one or would probably be very limited, and even if say he wanted to play on the power play, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't be able to play him in the game. Uh, first of all, he hadn't even played a, a game at that point, and it'd be unfair to ask him to step into game eight and try and you know be the star. So Bobby Orr was there, but his knee wasn't healed enough, and in fact, I think he didn't return to the NHL to the first week in November. That's how you know how severe his recovery was. So uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, from Canada's perspective, uh, we would have loved to have had them uh, on the team, and many believe that the series would not have ended up as close as it did if they could have played.
3: All right, give give us a sense of how this was set up, the the hype, the uh, how it was released to the to the uh, to the public, uh, the idea of it, uh, uh, the 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 build up to it. Um, it ran eight games, but uh, what, was it even envisioned as an eight-game series? I mean, why would you have an even amount of games and, and, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, how, and, and maybe even the timing of it, like how was this all sort of framed and, and set up and, and uh, hyped, I guess?
6: Uh, a lot of good questions. Uh try and answer them as succinctly as possible. The NHL was loath to interrupt their season. They understood that, it, you know, There'd be a disadvantage that the Soviet players were known to, if not train year round, they certainly trained uh, upwards of 10 months a year. Um, But the NHL really didn't want to have some special international series with Team Canada, like being pulled out of the league, uh, all those players related to Team Canada and then interrupting the season for gosh knows how long. I mean, the way it was scheduled was a month. Uh, and the idea was we'll, we'll start off early September, run for two weeks, break um, for two weeks, and then, oh, sorry, uh, play for a week, break for two weeks, and then restart again. And in essence, everything happened over four weeks, which is quite a period of time. So it was seen that the only, you know, timing that could work would be uh, in the train. It would normally be training camp for the players. Um, as to the the conditions of the tournament, that was all decided in the spring, in as those World Hockey Championships were happening in 1972, and it was finally agreed upon. Yes, we're going to have this tournament. Um, I think it was felt to be fair. You know, four games here, four games there. It wasn't kind of seen as a seven-game winner-take-all series. It was it was actually meant to be a friendly exhibition, if you can imagine it. Uh, it was expected to be competitive, but Nobody, I think, foresaw that it would turn into the, you know, pitch battle right to the almost to the final second that it turned out to be. So, again, you had the, the two parties that finally came together. It was Hockey Canada and the Canadian uh, Amateur Hockey Association kind of negotiating. There was a little competition going on, uh, you know, structure wise. And uh, the Soviets got the deal they wanted. And then it, it took on a life of its own. Um during the summer, usually hockey news, literally the hockey news, became very quiet because, you know, there wasn't a lot going on. This is probably the first time ever where hockey became like daily news, especially once the team was picked in July. So it just fever pitched from there. Almost like every day there's more articles, more interviews, more more interest. And then by the time you got to September 2nd, first game in Montreal, it was it was almost like <laughs> you know you had powder keg and match type of thing. Everyone was ready.
3: Yeah, and it, the 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 even the uh, uh, the this, not only the selection of the team but the naming of the team, calling it Team Canada, which I which I guess was Alan Eagleson's idea, or or I, I also understand there was an ad agency sort of involved. Now Alan Eagleson is a whole other uh, can of worms idea. there, and and uh, one which we opened up with. Uh, Uh, our pal Dan Bouchard uh, in a previous episode. Uh, I I, I digress on that, and I I encourage our listeners to listen to that episode, all two hours of it, because uh, that's a whole sort of uh, intriguing uh, tale and saga in and of itself. But suffice to say, Alan's part of this mix uh, during during this time. Um, But it almost feels like this... uh, I'm just wondering how this hype sort of uh, developed. Was it sort of organic, or was it... Because this is also, again, people of this current generation sort of remember, this is also during the the height, if you will, of what was known as the Cold War, right? Where it was sort of, you know, the the, the iron curtain of of this sort of mystical and and mysterious and and evil almost uh, Soviet Union and a a free country in Canada, arguably one of the better, if not the best hockey playing nation on the planet. Um, uh, That just seems like it's ready made for press and or uh, hype.
6: I, absolutely. And I, I think organic is a perfect description. It literally grew almost like a seed. And again, I, I, would, I would go back to 1954. The Soviets show up at their first uh, World Hockey Championships and completely embarrass Canada. Uh, and then we come back the next year and beat them. And then they defeat us. Uh, well, defeat every country in the 1956 Olympics. So you have this rivalry, simmering rivalry building pretty quickly, and then as it kind of, uh, you know, the end of the 50s happens, in amongst that time period was the 1957 uh, tour, where a Soviet team of kind of Soviet stars um, came over and played a number of Canada's senior teams and a few junior teams, and that was well-received. It actually received, um, I think the first game was in, Toronto and Maple Leaf Gardens, and it was funny enough. Ended up seven to two. The Soviets scored the first two goals, and then the um, uh, I'm trying to think which team it was. Whitby Dunlops ended up scoring seven straight goals, and this was broadcast on national TV in like November of 1957. So you you just saw all of these developments happening. It was like one, you know, one step at a time up this, uh, this hill. And uh, again, I think that's where the term summit kind of came from, that each step upwards was leading to the great confrontation. And even though nobody really thought of it necessarily, uh, in that terms, uh, like you say, there's the political side of things. The Soviet union was this big, mysterious country that seemed, we didn't know what they were up to. And uh, when they invaded Czechoslovakia in 1969, that only added to kind of this fear element that they wanted to take over the world. You know, here they are invading a country and bringing tanks in there and and doing so against that country's will. So, you know, the, every element you can imagine, you know, there's the uh, democracy versus communism element. You've got the amateur versus Pro hockey element, you've got literally Canada being, you know, the, considered the birthplace of hockey and the Soviet Union wanting to become the world power in hockey. So all of these were, I guess the word I'd use is convergence. All of these things were converging together and it just, you know, it was timing. Uh, 72 just seemed to be the right timing. Uh, the Soviets wanted it. We wanted it. Um, the hockey public wanted it. And uh, they made it happen, and then it kind of took on a life of its own. And I think once the team was selected in Canada, the the interest just kept growing, like literally by day, because everyone wanted to know who got picked, why somebody didn't get picked. Uh, Bobby Hall was quite a controversy, a controversial thing because the Prime Minister of Canada, who happened to be uh, Pierre Trudeau at that time who happens to be Justin Trudeau's uh, father, our current prime minister, he actually asked the NHL to let Bobby Hull play. So you 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 had uh, unprecedented things happening that um, had never been seen before, and it, it just carried on through right from beginning to end of the series.
3: Well, it also uh, appears to me that the Canadian press, the Western press, the, the hockey uh, intelligentsia were... Uh, I don't know. Almost uh, super confident, I guess, that uh, Canada, or maybe uninformed, perhaps that uh, Canada would not only do pretty well in this "quote unquote" exhibition series, but yeah, you know, it looked like there was even speculation that you know could the Russians even win a game, and so I, so I, I'm wondering as as it's almost like a rocky uh you know uh, movie right uh, you know it's sort of like a, the the hype and the the pomp and the circumstance like I, it almost feels to me like there's sort of a combination in this in this uh uh, uh prelude to to this series that there's sort of this confidence i guess uh, with a, a, a bit of folks sort of questioning maybe whether canada is going to do as well as everybody thinks they're going to but almost maybe also frankly some i Sandbagging, perhaps by the by the Soviets, uh, kind of not letting on, perhaps as to how well they are. Or do you think that they were truly uh, unaware, perhaps of of how well they could perform? I I can't really tell by reading sort of some of the history. But I, I, you know, the Soviets certainly were probably pretty cunning and and sort of knew how to sort of strategically maybe set themselves up too. So it, I wouldn't put him wouldn't put him past. Uh, the, the Russian authorities, right? To to perhaps uh, I don't know undersell their capabilities and perhaps uh, surprise a few folks along the way. W- w- what was what's your perception of sort of the reality check between these two teams and their uh, beliefs and how they could perform in such a series?
6: Well, we I think on the NHL side of things, you you just had this absolute you know belief that there's no way uh our team can lose that an amateur team of any sort would be able to beat the best pros in hockey i i think there was overconfidence to a degree and it it probably actually feasted on itself as all the players came together because they were you know i think admittedly a lot of the players were in awe of some of the guys on the team you know some of the younger players seeing Frank Mahovlich being there, and uh, you know Phil Esposito, and and believing how could we possibly lose? Even though Bobby Hall's not here, and even though Bobby Orr's not here, we still have you know all star players. We still have you know um, legendary figures. Uh, so I think, without a doubt, on the Canadian side, there was a level of overconfidence. But funny enough, I think a lot of it was the media. Um, I think they they. I've, heard fans being interviewed. Uh, I've read different articles. And the fans themselves were, I think, split. They felt that, yes, we were going to win, but I think it's going to be tougher than everybody's saying. Uh, When you look at some of the comments, and uh, I'll just give an example in the hockey news. um, Alan Eagleson, of course, said, we're winning eight games to nothing. Uh, Yet Gordie Howe saying, we're going to win, but I think uh, if we're going to have a problem, it'll be the first game or two because NHL players condition themselves to reach their peak a month or month and a half into the season that they're not used to hitting their peak so early so here's a player's perspective that hey you know it, it, we, we're going to have some challenges on our side uh, uh one of the best comments was actually murray williamson the u.s uh, 72 olympic coach and he said i think he summed it up from that you know that independent perspective uh which is often you know uh, the, the best one i'd say he goes. They're playing right into the Russian hands. While the Canadians will be just completing training camps, the Russians will be at their peak. They'll probably have started their camp in late July, a month before the Canadians, and probably have fifteen to twenty games under the under their belts by the time the teams meet. So there's absolutely, you've got these two dynamics, which is uh, NHL players. They, they 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 were you know they appreciated the honor of being chosen. For Team Canada, but they weren't necessarily, you know, thrilled about it. A lot of them had, um, you know, a lot of them had summer jobs. Even then, they weren't, they didn't get the pay they get today. They, they held things like summer, um, uh, summer skating, and uh, hockey camps, and they, and they made a lot of money from that. And so, uh, they they had to give up, uh, lucrative, uh, you know, endorsements, and to a degree had their their camps interrupted. So the players themselves probably felt. In two degrees, this is more of an inconvenience. Hey, we're we're glad to play, but really, you know, it's not not first thing on my list, right? I'd like to enjoy my summer. Uh, So you had the media being overconfident. You had players who, this is brand new. This has never, ever happened before. Never ever they had to gather and have a camp for, you know, uh, several weeks in preparation of a tournament that started in September completely different mindset. Today, it's, it's you know, through the hockey, uh, sorry, through the Canada Cups and the World Cups so of Hockey, it, it's become the norm, I, I guess. Back then, it wasn't the norm. It had never happened before. On the Soviet side, they were very glad to be KG. They were very glad to let us be overconfident to say, you know, we're going to beat them <laughs> you know, by a goal or two every game, but they they were frantically uh, preparing behind the scenes because they 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 felt that they were in tough. Uh, different comments I've read they they really didn't know how it was going to go, but they were going to give it their best shot. And they had been self-evaluating for quite a few years. Uh, one book I read, um, I believe his name was Mayorov, and he was kind of a evaluator of of Soviet hockey, a key figure, and had been a good player in their system. And he even, you know, did this analysis measuring, you know, stick handling ability, skating, goaltending, and then even in 1969, he felt that they had the edge in many categories over Canadian players. So don't kid yourself; they they were ready. They they were as ready as they could be, and they didn't know what was going to happen. But they didn't want us to know that they were as ready <laughs> for us. And we weren't for them, if if uh, that kind of sums things up.
3: Yeah, well, it also feels like there's a bit of um, uh, innocence slash naivete, perhaps, right? Because this sort of word of professional, I think, almost feels like a convenient, um, I don't know, badge of of courage, I guess, or, or or confidence, right? Because you know, as as a kid growing up, watching you know various Soviet and then Russian teams. Uh, in the Olympics, for example, it was a, sort of ingrained and in, in sort of pounded in, into one's head when listening to the broadcasters that essentially these were pros because in that Soviet system, right, they're basically being paid by the government to be effectively professionals, the, despite okay. this sort of amateur label, right? So uh, it's really it's really odd, I guess, looking back and, and maybe, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? But, you know, to think that, oh, hey, we're the best and the professional and we're going to prove it. Says Canada, but the reality is that you know for the last decade prior, right? You know, every amateur competition, the Russians were the Soviets were dominating, right? So that's that's a, an interesting, maybe word parsing there that uh, kind of maybe plays plays a role, perhaps in some confidence building, maybe uh, improperly uh, placed.
6: And uh, it, it kind of comes from you know, I guess expectations. It um, it comes from being told that you're the best and not the any of the nhl players i think were sitting around at night going hey, you know i'm the best player in the world or i'm one of the best they they just knew that they, because they could only play against other nhl players they had nothing to kind of standard bear against how good am i and vice versa the european players they were They were very anxious to see how they, you know, how they measured up, I guess, is the right word. And um, I think for a lot of the younger listeners, uh, it was so different back then. We got our news literally by reading the news. You had to pick up a newspaper. You had to get the hockey news. Um, You couldn't kind of do a search on the internet. You couldn't uh, watch game footage of people that, you know, from around the world. These things just didn't exist. The the Soviet players themselves, except for when we saw them periodically at World Hockey Championships and Olympics, assuming they were being broadcast, we knew almost nothing about them. Uh, and to try and explain to somebody that this particular player, like a uh, Harlamov, for example, is is an outstanding player, oh, sure he is in international hockey. Uh, but you're right, The there was also the realization that, you know, it, it, they were called shammer, you know, shamateurs because they were dedicated to playing hockey and maybe even more so than the NHL. I mean, when you had the Soviets training, and I think it, at that time it was not year-round, but it was more like 10 months out of the year, which is pretty substantial. And NHL players, their season ran, you know, went into training camp in, sometime in September, and most were done – By the end of April, unless you made it to the Stanley Cup Final, so you had, you know, maybe May, June, July, August, at least four months of the year where you know you were enjoying life, enjoying the summer, doing other jobs, those kinds of things. So some of the players realized they're they're perhaps more professional than we are because of the amount of time they dedicate to hockey. Not that they, not that the NHL was. Second rate in that regard, but it was just the way the Soviets ran things. You know, when you when you became part of their Soviet national team, you were, you know, I don't know what the right word is exactly, but uh, you were a slave to it in a sense. Uh, Yeah, or in in
3: in mafia terms, you were made. You were made. Um, (laughs) All right. Well, so let's let's get into let's get into the set of the series. I mean, we could probably do an episode for each and every game. That's just how significant uh, and and culturally uh, uh, built up this was, especially for, for uh, the Canadian populace. But uh, September 2nd, 1972, uh, the first of what were going to be four games spread across Canada, right? So um, yeah. maybe you can kind of walk us through some of those games. And I guess it's probably important to kind of just maybe set the tone with the first game in Montreal. Um, I think that Canadian confidence was um, – Challenged uh, pretty quickly, wasn't it?
6: It, it was a um, a game of uh, many faces, and the reason I say that is um, the game itself was incredibly unique. Because before NHL games, you you know the teams came out, they had a warm up, they dropped the puck, and they played. Um, the Summit Series had this huge opening pregame ceremony that lasted almost thirty minutes, if you can imagine. So the players who were geared up to, you know, start at the drop of the puck at 8 o'clock, they didn't start for half an hour.
2: Now, the representative of the Soviet delegation, Mr. Georgi Rygulski, will join Mr. Elliott Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, and Mr. Charles A., President of Hockey Canada. The captains, the executive captains of both teams, will now meet the prime minister for Canada. For Russia, rather, for Larissi, Mr. Kuzkin, Mr. Ragulin, and Mr. Pikulov will meet the prime minister along with Attel, Phil Esposito, and Frank Mahovlich.
5: I can't recall any game that I've ever been at where you can just feel the tension and it's deep building up and it's very warm in the forum tonight. And at the same time, the fans are really on their toes. They hardly can wait to see the beginning of this game. There's the official face-off.
6: They were introduced. Uh, there was all the pomp and pageantry and all that. By the time the game actually started, it was early September, it was pretty warm, uh, for that time of year. Um, I think it was well over 80 degrees in the building. So you can just imagine these players were melting. They, they were hot. They were, they were over anxious. Um, started off great. We scored in the first 30 seconds. Um, then we scored again a few minutes later, we're up two nothing, but the players on the bench were even talking amongst themselves that these guys are good. Uh, they were saying you, you hit them. It was like hitting a brick wall they were so solid um they skated like the wind and they they moved the puck in a in a way that the NHL players uh, and this will speak to some uh, I think some of the lack of preparation um they didn't know how the Soviet players were going to play it was not something that was covered very well in camp so when the Soviet players would pass the puck more uh, they call it east-west, instead of going north-south, up and down the rink. They were using the rink all over the place. And if they didn't like what they saw, they turned around and went back. You didn't do that in the NHL. You know, it was always skate forward and go to the other end and, you know, crash, bang, you know, charge. Uh, the Canadian players were, were, they quickly found out once the Soviets got their first goal, tied the game, that this was going to be a very long series. And what turned out, you know, what started out wonderfully and looked like it was going to be the cakewalk everyone was expecting, so suddenly turned on its ear. And it was a very close game um, up until about just over 10 minutes left. Uh, we scored a goal to make it 4 3. In this series, they used the international rules, uh, which had been when games were outside. So to take away the disadvantage of a team, say, playing facing the Sun, in the third period, they would halt play after 10 minutes and switch ends. So that happened and we were close, we were you know, trying to tie the game, and then it all fell apart. And literally, they scored several quick goals and it turned into a debacle, and we lost 7-3, a national embarrassment. So... There were a lot of mistakes made that game, um, a lot of things that were learned, but it, it shocked everybody. It was an utter, you know, uh, the players couldn't believe it, the fans couldn't believe it, and the press had a field day, as you can imagine. So that's kind of the way the series started off. You know, we were supposed to win eight games to none, according to some uh, experts, and now it almost looked like, were we going to win a game? So was there, a little, guess, was there guess, a
3: little controversy at the end of the game that the Team Canada didn't even um, shake the hands of the Soviets after after the game?
6: Yes. Unfortunately, the players themselves hadn't been notified of any post-game, uh, you know, handshakes. So they, a lot of them were, you know, you can imagine they've just lost, uh, they're in complete shock, they're upset, they're angry, and they're going to their dressing rooms. And then somebody says, go back out on the ice. <laughs> You're supposed to shake hands. The, it was embarrassing. So, so
3: it wasn't on purpose. They, they did no, it sort no. of un- unwittingly. Okay. But they, that probably, they, that they probably know, added know. a little extra drama, maybe unwittingly, no?
6: It did, because the Soviet players are standing there ready and waiting to, to do so. Uh, and the Canadian players, unfortunately, some of them had already gone to the room, removed their jerseys and that. And it was just kind of seen as it's too late now uh so it was a, it was a bit of an embarrassment but the players themselves they didn't know and uh, i'm not even sure if the coaches knew it, it just again here's a series it's never been done before uh nobody knows all the protocols and uh, or it's maybe somebody assumed they knew the protocols and we usually you know, we know what happens when somebody assumes right so uh so the first game it it, it, it just across the board you know fans were felt embarrassed the team felt embarrassed uh, we we knew we were in for a tough series, and uh, we would only gone through one of eight games.
3: So, what happens two days later in Toronto? Um, I mean, uh, the press as well as uh, the reaction of the of the coaches and the, and the players um, looks like there was a, a, a pretty dramatic shift in the in the in the roster. It looks like that that people really, if there was any. Uh, notion that this was going to be an exhibition series that uh, was sort of gently played amongst two uh countries just uh, trying to uh, uh showcase talent uh it obviously started to take on some more urgency i guess from the canadian side for sure
6: very good point um, uh, some of the player selections were based on how players had done in the three in in the scrimmage games or five of those between team canada red and white and then they had three intra squad games so they kind of went with the players that you know that gave what appeared to be the best effort, and that's that's a reasonable uh, thing to do. Um, but looking at the changes they made for game two, uh, you could see that there was quite a few players that, looking back, you would say, "Well, they should have been in there from the beginning," and that'd be a fair statement. But um, one of the biggest changes, and it's not one that's commonly known, is that uh, in game one. Uh, Coach Sinden, um, two things to this. One is, at that time, the NHL and in this series, they only had 17 skaters and two goalies for the lineup. So you didn't have the advantage of being able to have 12 forwards and six defensemen, which is a nice even number because then you have four lines of three forwards and you have three sets of two defensemen. In this series, though, you only had 17. So you had to give up either a forward or a defenseman. So in game one, uh, Coach Sinden decided to go with just five defensemen. That was a critical error. Um, one of the players, in fact, uh, um, Raj Thielen, f- went to Coach Sinden and begged him to play six defensemen. He said, I've played against these guys. Uh, he had played, with, um, I believe, with the national team earlier on, and he had he knew what these guys were capable of in the skating, and he felt that they needed all hands on board on defense. Unfortunately, going with five defensemen really made it inconvenient to, you know, to try and have pairings, and uh, the defensemen were exhausted. They were overplayed, and in game two, they went with six defensemen, which was a positive move, and they uh, brought in Stan Makita. Sir Savard, Bill White, Pat Stapleton, J.P. Parise, and Cashman—all very well-known names, uh, I'm sure to many hockey fans—and they, you know, simply uh, put, they were they were probably better matched against the Soviets than some of the players they had put out in Game One. And as you said, they they were viewed as exhibitions. Nobody, you know, hey, people have given up their summer; they deserve a chance to play against the Soviets. Uh, all of a sudden, it became no. We have to ice our best team possible and try and win these games because we're in a lot of trouble. And the moves paid off. Uh, I call Game Two probably the most uh, playoff NHL playoff game like of of the series. The intensity was was very high. Canada knew we can't afford to go down two games in this series, and it was very tight. Uh, checking affair and Dryden who had a rough game in game one was replaced by Tony Esposito who was just in my view spectacular. He made some some game-saving saves as they say and kept them in early when the game could have gone the Soviet way and then Canada finally scored open uh, the game up scored another goal. Uh, there was a very famous uh, shorthanded goal by Peter Mahovlich that's uh, been seen by many people over and over. It's a beautiful goal one of the one of the best you'll feet.
5: Over on the far side, right in front of the goal, went wide of the net. Zeeman knocked it back with a goal. It rolls off to the side. They failed to clear it out. The point failed to get it away. Then Escogado cleared out. It's a race down with Peter Mahapis going in on goal. Right in!
0: Can you see that Russian is still wondering where the puck is? Peter Mahoglic made an absolutely beautiful move. He has picked up the puck inside his red line. Now look at him isolate quality air. He gets him to put his legs together, isolates him, and then walks right around him. And what a move he made on Tretzak. Jack. Stretchak Jack was completely fooled. Look at the move. He holds him with the big slap shot around with the big Now look at the move here. And holds it
6: and jams it behind. And the Soviets did get a goal, made it a little closer, but Canada punched in one more from Frank Mahovlich, and won the game seemingly handily 4-1. to one. Uh, one of the things that stands out with the 72 series that I feel is a bit of a misnomer is many people have said Team Canada was not in shape. Well, they didn't magically get in shape two days after game one, to win game two, four to one. I think um, the truth is we were not in Soviet game shape, but uh, we never could be because we didn't train like that. But fortunately now the series is tied and uh, things are looking up, but uh, people were very concerned before this game. Uh, The tension's almost palatable amongst the crowd, and it was was a great effort. Uh, It was kind of like the world had uh, gone back to normal again.
3: Well, it almost seems explosive, too, because, uh, you know, again, if if there was any sort of uh, it all seems. So tell me about the end of the game, because the Soviet coach, right, was all over the refs and thought for sure that this was uh, this American tandem uh, call in the call in the game. were not calling it uh, even handedly and perhaps giving it away, if you will, to the Canadians, um, maybe you can explain that a little bit, but also if there's any, you know, it sort of belies any kind of, uh, if this is even the, the term exhibition was even still in the, in the lexicon after game two, I mean, it's pretty clear that the Russians were, uh, in this, the Soviets were in this, uh, to prove points and or win. And, uh, it seems like, uh, <laughs> if people didn't sort of understand that they certainly understood it by, uh, the shenanigans at the end of the game.
6: Well, the, um, there was certainly uh, another event, too. Harlem kind of uh, got very upset at one point and got a misconduct. Uh, they felt that, and I think it was Frank Larson and Steve Dowling, who I actually have met and was a, an amazing person, um, they felt that they were letting Canada get away with too much. But I, I, I honestly, in watching the game, I think it's just a tight-checking, playoff-like game that was kind of the NHL's bread-and-butter um, the players knew they had to slow the Soviets down. They knew they had to get in there and be physical with them. And simply put, the, the Soviets had n- never played a game like that. Uh, and they didn't like it. And uh, they adjusted. I mean, if anything, the Soviet team coaches, players were very quick learners. But I think simply put, they just didn't like the level of physical play and the grittiness and, and that. And, uh, and they took it out on the refs. Uh, And funny enough, um, they kind of made an agreement with Team Canada that those refs would not ref again, even though they were supposed to do Game 4, with the understanding that they would return the favour for Team Canada at some point, which uh, really and truly they probably didn't. But um, I think it was just, they were probably just as embarrassed in a sense as Canada was after Game 1, but they'd lost uh, handily.
3: All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into Game Three because this is this really you know so it's 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 one game to one game, uh, great. But uh, Game Three in Winnipeg, um, interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it ends in a tie, and and because this I guess was originally envisioned or were officially still defined as an exhibition, there was curiously no uh, provision for overtime. Um, That's correct. But number two, it's also interesting, too, in that this was a game that the Canadians kind of let slip out of their hands because they were winning multiple times during this game. And uh, the Russians came back with some shorthanded goals at that
5: they have been a number of close calls in this one at either end. Goalkeeping has really been tremendous. Petrov is ready for the faceoff for the Soviet. Got the draw, but was not back to Bergman. Bergman is grabbed by Petrov and hauled down. The puck is in the corner. Bergman ran at his check. Petrov. And the puck is back in the corner. The high loft covered, and the game is over. In a 4-4 tie. Canada 4, the USSR 4, and that's a fair appraisal of a tremendous struggle. Two teams are tired, but put up a tremendous effort. But the final score, Canada four, and the Soviets four. This is game three from Winnipeg.
6: It was a very well played game, and and I think. Part of it was the Soviets adjusted. Uh, They they knew what Canada was going, you know, the style of play they were going to come out with. And uh, they took advantage of, they had a breakout play that was even noticed by the Canadian scouts when they were there in August um, and over in the Soviet Union to to watch some of the players. They mastered the bank shot, literally. On one play, uh, Makarlov makes absolutely you know world class pass from from like his uh, goal line uh, from the corner and banks it off the boards and Harlamov picks it up just uh, just before center and goes in on a breakaway and that goal was critical canada was in control of the game we were winning 3 to 1 at that point and then he scores a, a beautiful goal and it was shorthanded the boot so you know it was almost like canada's like just when we feel we're we're getting a leg up they have this knack of coming back and finding finding a way to, you know, get uh, get back into the game, and, and they did that constantly. Even when we went up four to two, uh, shortly after they scored their second goal, um, they they scored two quick goals after that, and and some of it was I I'd call critical mistakes. Some um, players, uh, you know, on one play, Phil Esposito kind of went into the corner to help his uh, wing. Uh, Cashman, and then they managed to, to get a goal, and Cashman basically told them to stay where he belongs. And in another play, Cornway kind of got out of position. And, and some of that, I think, has to do with Team Canada had never played together before. The Soviet national team had played together, you know, they had changed, as they had different players over time, but the core of this team had been around for years. Um, they knew themselves inside out. The Canadian players were a mishmash of uh, pretty much every team in the NHL, except except for a few expansion teams. So you had a team that was still struggling to find its chemistry and flow against a team that knew exactly how one another played. And you gave them an inch and they took a mile type of thing. But it was a very good game. Um, again, the goaltending was, uh, there was some excellent goals. Super goaltending, but it was a sister kisser, as they say. So now we have one one game one, they have one game one, and we have a game tied. So the drama's you know continuing to build again.
3: But that that only that sort of that. So that was if there was a a an initial turning point in this series, it was certainly that because it seemed to extend into Game Four in Vancouver. Uh, and I, maybe you can describe the atmosphere. Both at the beginning of the game, say from the fans, as well as not only what after what happened in the game, but but at, afterwards, right? The 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 way that this game sort of ended, right? A, a, and as the sort of the 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 entree or the the uh, the I don't know the boarding the plane to get to the, the series going to the Soviet Union, not the best way to leave uh, uh, your your home series for sure.
6: No, no, it was it was a shock for the players uh BC uh, British Columbia our further west province is a, a kind of has a mindset i suppose a little like perhaps California in the US uh they're a little bit more independent a little bit more you know free spirited i guess and for whatever reason the Vancouver crowd um just they didn't seem to be too happy with how Team Canada had been playing. There seemed to be this air of criticism about our physical, what was kind of thought of as our overtly physical play, and the fact that maybe, you know, hey, why aren't you winning this series handily? So the response, and and it actually started in the warm-ups, where there were some boos from the the crowd, and the team was very confused. They're like kind of looking around, Going, are we still in Canada anymore it it was a It was a bad foot you know to start off the game, and it and it, it really put the team in a you know a bad mood or uh, kind of a doubtful mood because here they are they're giving up their summer they're playing for their country, and we 're getting booed by our own crowd and this was before the game started, and as the game went along, a, a few things happened um one was uh for whatever reason, Sinden decided to go with only three centers, and so you had um, a, a kind of a tired Esposito who had played three games in a row, a very tired Bobby Clark who who struggled this game, and then they brought in uh, young Gilbert Perrault who played very well, but he, mm-hmm. um, you know, he wasn't played say as regularly as as some of the other centers, so that kind of hurt the team, I think. Um, Again, it was, it was these uh, lineup adjustments. They, the Game 4 uh, lineup for Canada resembled, in a lot of ways, their Game 1 lineup, and we all know how well that went. It just didn't seem to be a, an effective lineup against the Russians. So it, it was a combination of things. Um, Gold, uh, Bill Goldsworthy went in the lineup for Cashman, took a couple bad penalties. The Soviets scored power play goals, and the crowd booed. And I think that's kind of the way I'd sum up the game. Uh, we were never really in it. Uh, we scored a late goal to kind of, you know, uh, lessen the blow, but the five, three loss was, it, it was not our best game. And even worse was we were leaving Canada down two games to one with one tie and going to their home ice. And it was looking very, very dark at that point. Um, and it was going to, funny enough, it was going to get worse. Um, game four, was also a turning point, though. As you say, um, the post-game, Phil Esposito actually vowed to uh, become one of the game stars because he wanted to be in post-game interview, and he was. He um, got interviewed by CTV, who was carrying that game, and he kind of, you know, put his heart out there. Uh, He said how hard the team was playing, how they were trying their best, and... um, They were shocked that they weren't getting the support from Canadian fans, and it was kind of like a call out to the country, and as well, it was um, I think in a way a cry for support. You know, we're 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 in trouble here, and we need you know maybe we need a pat on the back as opposed to a kick in the in the butt type of thing.
4: For the people across Canada, we tried, we did our best, and uh, for the people at Boos, geez, I I'm really. I, all of us guys are really disheartened and we're disillusioned and we're disappointed in some of the people. We cannot believe the bad press we've got, uh, the, the booing we've gotten in our own buildings. And if, if, if the Russians boo their, their players, if the fans, if Russians boo their players like some of the Canadian fans, I'm not saying all of them, some of them booed us, then I'll come back and I'll apologize to each one of the Canadians. But I don't think they will. I'm really, really, I'm really disappointed. I am completely disappointed. I cannot believe it. Some of our guys are really, really down in the dumps. We know we're trying. What the hell, I mean, we're we're doing the best we can, and uh, they got a good team. And let's face facts, but uh, it doesn't mean that we're not giving it our 150 percent because we certainly are.
2: I think uh, Phil, the disappointment is. A natural thing because it, the whole thing was an unexpected thing they you know we all live with the National Hockey League we have all been so proud well, over the years how great they are it's and
4: unexpected because of the press said that we are so good
2: no 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 this is the thing this is the thing that I'm on behalf of the fans I must say that uh, that uh, probably since everything is is relative we know how good you people are. The people didn't realize how good the Soviet team was, and now we found out how good they are. I think we can appreciate how good both teams are. But I'll tell
4: you, we, we love... I mean, every one of us guys, 35 guys that came out and played for Team Canada, we did it because we love our country. And not for any other reason, no other reason. They can throw the money uh, for the pension fund out the window, they can throw anything they want out the window. We came because we love Canada. And even though we play in the United States and we earn money in the United States, Canada is still our home, and that's the only reason we come. And I don't think it's fair that we should be booed. Well, Phil, I'm
2: sure that the people can see from these sweat just pouring off your face that you and all your players have given 100%, and we look forward to some great games from you and the rest of your gang when you get over to Moscow, and we can wish you the very best of luck. John, Keep working hard.
4: we're going to get better. Right now. <laughs> boy. Thank you
2: very <laughs> Thank much, you. Phil.
3: Yeah, But it's also uh, a, a metastasizing, I guess, of what was supposed to be an exhibition series, right, into something much, much more right so uh, it feels to me like this series was taking on much more importance even though it wasn't you know designed to be that right and the drama sort of uh, encircling around it i mean the press and the, and the the fans and all that kind of stuff uh, this wasn't it seems what the players at least the canadian players maybe thought they were signing up for or being signed up for
6: i completely agree i think they they felt abandoned um at that point team canada literally they viewed themselves uh they were a- an island amongst themselves and it wasn't you know it wasn't that they wanted it that way they just felt that they you know th- the country was against them <laughs> obviously the soviets had them a little bit on the run and uh they had to band together you know uh, it's kind of like a little bit, obviously not the same as being in a, in a war, but there was a little bit of that war mentality that we, we have to stick together, otherwise all is lost. And uh, so as, as difficult a, a moment in time it was, it also did resonate. And I think it still resonates now. It's, uh, if anybody were to watch Phil Esposito's speech, it's uh, there on YouTube. It's, it's very heartfelt, you know, heartfelt and this this guy who has been the leading scorer in the NHL for a few years along with Bobby Orr he is profusely sweating like if somebody had taken a bucket and poured it on him i don't think he could be uh, you know look any <laughs> sweatier than what he did and that just kind of showed everybody like they're giving their best they they're out there trying and they know they're in for a tough haul so it it, it did galvanize, galvanize the team. And I think it started to open up, the, you know, the country to the fact that maybe, you know, we need to kind of be less critical and a little bit more open. Um, interestingly, if I may, uh, I found a quote in the uh, book Cold War that um, from the Soviet side of things, they were beyond the moon. They were ecstatic. And uh, the quote is, the series is lost for Canada. We have reached our objective, which was a win and a tie in the four games here. We'll wrap it up in Moscow no matter what happens in the Vancouver game. So this was a Soviet official to Montreal Star reporter John Robertson prior to the Vancouver game, which they ended up winning. So the Soviets, funny enough, if we can describe the series as Canada overconfident and the Soviets, you know, unsure, uh, by the end of game four, it was almost a complete flip. The Soviets were now perhaps getting overconfident and Canada was, you know, didn't know (laughs) what was going to happen and didn't know quite how to, you know, right the ship as it were.
3: Right out of central casting, right? Yes. All right. So game five, right? So there's a two week hiatus uh, and uh, let's set the tone as they uh, uh, get ready for four games uh, in Moscow, which, unlike in the, the uh, Canadian uh, part of the series, were all going to take place in the same location, Luzinski. I think I no, sorry. Luzni, how do you say it? Luzniki? L- Luzniki. Luzniki Ice Palace, right, all in Moscow. Um, yeah. I'm curious as to why that was the case. Why not say in some other locations around, uh, around the, the country? Uh, but there were also a bunch of Canadian fans that came along for the ride as well. Um, maybe you could sort of set the tone there. And I know there were some exhibition games even played in between uh, this series by both teams prior to uh, getting back on the ice uh, two weeks hence.
6: Uh, yes, um uh, I'll kind of I guess I'll project uh, project chronologically. So uh, Canada didn't immediately um, you know play any additional games. There was a break but they flew over to Sweden and then they played uh, two exhibition games back to back on September 16th and 17th. So when the series finished up on uh, the first half of the series finished up on uh, September 8th, there was kind of a week um, to lick our wounds and, and kind of try and figure out, uh, you know, what they were going to do next. So when they went to um, uh, Sweden, they were meant to acclimatize the team, you know, nhl size rink is is 15 feet less wide uh, than the international surface, which is 200 feet by 100 feet wide. So they wanted a couple of games to acclimatize themselves to the new rink with the expectation that they were going to be winning the series handily. Now these games became, you know... uh, very important. They they needed to adjust to the big ice and get themselves ready for the second half of the series. Uh, the first game was somewhat uneventful. Uh, Tony Esposito played great in net. The team won fairly handily, 4-1, and the Swedes were described as being in awe of Canada. The second game turned into a debacle. Again, uh, a lot of it's on YouTube. Um, there was a uh, Cashman, um, according to reports, he took a stick in the mouth, which cut his tongue open. Other reports suggest um, he had got hit under the jaw and it bit his own tongue so badly he almost sliced it in half. It was it was a pretty nasty injury, and that was with a a, a player, um, so a Swedish player, Alf Sterner, who had actually uh, played in the NHL but in the minor system, and I think probably had a few grudges because he wasn't treated very well. Back in the '60s, when he came over, and there was a stick swinging incident um, with Sterner and uh, Dale Talon. it turned into a very ugly game. It ended up in a 4-4 tie, but suffice to say, Canada was uh, primed for the the, uh, the last four games of the series. They were in a you know they were in a, a bad mood, as it, as it were. They wanted to you know play better, and they were determined to do so. The Soviet side of things is interesting. Um, It's no book or anything I'd ever read ever said what were the Soviets doing for their two weeks. I managed to find in my research um, the Russians, they had started a Sovetsky sport tournament in August, and then they paused it in order to have the playoff round in their two-week break. And uh, the players who were on teams because it was club teams in, uh, you know, from the Russian hockey league. So some players weren't playing because they didn't make it to the playoff round and they went on vacation. So you had this really odd dichotomy for the Soviet team where some of them were playing in this, you know, kind of playoff series, which was in many ways, a, a severe distraction. And you had other players sitting on beaches in Sochi. So, very different uh, approach and it might explain why the Soviets kind of maybe not the wheels fell off for them, but they, they weren't as quite the tight cohesive unit that they had been in Canada. And that was their own, you know, self-inflicted situation. If, uh, if I can call it that.
3: Interesting. And you also mentioned not only the, uh, uh the, the difference in the, uh, in the rank and getting it acclimated to that, but, uh, um, and I don't know if this is the case in Sweden too, but, um, the, um, uh the ice rink in moscow also didn't have plexiglass right they they, they were using netting is that right or boards yes, uh, yes. Boards? Uh,
6: stockholm did have glass um at that time in moscow it was this crazy mesh mesh kind of like what they use in the nhl now above the glass um they they had no side glass in fact if uh, if you look at any of the footage of those games if the puck goes above the boards, it's it's out of play. It was a very different situation, and uh, the mesh would come to haunt Canada at times uh, in in Game Five and in Game um, in Game Eight, where pucks that would probably have either rebounded much differently or even gone out of play in an NHL rink would get captured by this net and sprung back out like a slingshot. Um, very different, very very unusual, and um, it, it certainly, I would say, gave the Soviets a bit of a home team advantage that NHL players, you know, used to to glass for probably the last you know fifty years of NHL hockey. Um, and that, no that all, that,
3: that's it, that's in play when that rebounds like that. It's just that's in play. It's just like a like a just a uh, just like a rubbery rebounder kind of versus uh, it,
6: exactly and. In lieu of glass, they had the, the mesh, and the mesh was literally you know, in play, absolutely kept in play. And it was a little, probably a little higher than our glass, too. So you had all these uh, strange elements to it, but the biggest was if it hit that mesh, you didn't know where it was going to go, and it would seemingly, if it hit it right, it would come off faster than it went in. So it was a, it was a highly unusual um, you know, kind of situation to deal with.
3: What was the pomp and, from what you could tell, what was the pomp and circumstance? And by the way, these games were being broadcast back to the, to Canada and to certain stations in the United States, too, if I'm not mistaken, right? These were syndicated uh, uh, airings of the game, I think even live, right, back home? Yeah,
6: yeah. Uh, PBS picked it up in the U.S., and some, some showed it live, some showed it, uh, you know, tape-delayed, but... Uh, uh, in some areas of the United States, uh, fans were able to watch the entire Summit Series as well, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, Canadians kind of think of it as you know just us against them. But uh, there, are, there, there were a lot of American fans who were interested in the series and uh, rooting for Canada. There was a few rooting for the, US, uh, the USSR as well. Um, I, I know of a couple of, of uh, friends who uh, they, they kind of... They like the Soviets, bluntly put. But um, and that's okay they, in the end. Uh, everyone was fans of hockey. But what that allowed is um, a, a much broader audience. Uh, worldwide, in fact, there were European countries broadcasting it. And I think maybe for the first time, uh, the Soviet Union in many areas of their country, not all of them, but in many areas, they were seeing a hockey tournament broadcast, and that had never been done before either. You know, it was being broadcast live to them. Um, there was no, you know, nobody, you know, uh, pushing a button in case something uh, happened that they didn't want the uh, citizenry to see. But it it allowed the, um, I guess, the, the series to gain even a bigger audience than it might have. And uh, there's reports that maybe over 100 million people uh, saw Game 8 when you add up Canada, the USSR, and the U.S. and other European nations.
3: What was the uh, what was the pomp uh, and circumstance or uh, and the the pregame festivities uh, for this first game game five in this in the Soviet Union was it as uh, drawn out and uh, flourished as uh, as the Canadian version was uh, I do know from what I've read which is obviously a mere skimming versus what you've been able to research in your in your book and your your findings. Uh, they they had all the uh, all the political luminaries were there. I mean, Brezhnev was in there, and their premier was in there, and they, their heads of state and all that kind of stuff. So it would seem to me like this was sort of the, I don't know, the the Soviet version of the welcome to our country now yeah. kind of uh, <laughs> vibe.
6: Yeah, indeed, like uh, every game before Canada had definitely had opening ceremonies. Uh, the ones in Moscow had the had theirs as well. And you're right, they had all the political the lead head communist uh, figures up in their own box uh peering down upon you know <laughs> all the players and fans so uh it was it was considered very important in the country and, and probably more so because they were winning um and the ceremonies themselves very similar in, in with regards to our introductions but prior to the introductions, they had these um, these uh, lovely fans come out—not uh, fans, but skaters. Um, they were probably figure skaters uh, from you know Russian uh, sports, and they brought out these flowers. And uh, probably uh, one of the most memorable moments of the series was as the players were being introduced. Um, Phil Esposito, Canada's leading scorer and you know uh, leader off the ice in many ways he uh, accidentally stepped on a pedal or a stem and basically landed right on his rump, right in front of you know, those communist leaders and the entire world. Uh, but it was, it was kind of uh it broke the, you know, broke the ice literally uh, in terms of the tension. Uh, both, you know, both teams broke out in laughter and, uh, as a side note, um, Brad Park, who played with the Rangers, was bitter rivals with the Bruins. And just to show how much the team had kind of grown together, he actually came over to help Phil up off the ice, in a true sign of you know uh, of Team Canada sportsmanship. Uh, but it was hilarious, you know. There's no doubt about it, and and Phil makes, uh, you know, nobody could do it better than Phil. Instead of being embarrassed, uh, he started kissing you know, out to the crowd. Um, uh, ever the showman, as they say.
3: Um, but the uh, the game, they reverted back to form, though, right? Uh, they had a, a a commanding lead. The Canadians did four to one uh, in the third, and and then gave up four straight unanswered goals to lose that game. Um, they, were they crestfallen at that point? Or was it like, was it just, I mean, the fans that came from Canada, though, didn't seem to be, they seemed to be sort of behind the team and seemed like they were still, you know, happy to be there and, and giving their support to the team, unlike what they left in Vancouver. What's sort of the aftermath of that game? I mean, was it like a, yet another a game lost and, and all was sort of over? Or. Did they feel like it was? I, what was what was that all about? Because you look at the stats, and this looks like it's completely insurmountable at this point, having lost that way. I,
6: I, oh, couldn't agree more. It was it was a shocker because they'd played so well. Um, funny enough, you mentioned the mesh because Team uh, Canada built uh, almost a commanding lead, uh, four to one, with eleven minutes remaining, when a Soviet player, Anson, made an incredible. Uh, behind the legs and uh, he wasn't even facing the net. He, he deflected the puck facing his net the other direction, into you know, the top corner and literally eight seconds later, they scored another goal. I think it went off one of the defensive skates and it just, it, what's interesting about the anison goal is that the puck had hit the mesh just before that and probably would have gone out of play and, in a normal game, um, but it stayed in play. So, Everything kind of went wrong. Uh, anything that could go wrong went wrong. And it uh, wasn't the goaltending of Canada. It was just crazy deflections, beautiful plays, and you're right. Um, when we went from winning 4-1 to one in seemingly you know, insurmountable lead to losing 5-4, you might think that the team would have been absolutely crushed. But they went into the room. Funny enough, uh, one of the players, I think it was Phil Esposito, said, it was at that point in time we knew we could beat them. Like this game had gotten away from us due to you know a variety of circumstances, but they actually felt supremely confident, not overconfident, that they could somehow do the what would seem the impossible: win three straight games on enemy you know uh, ice in Moscow. But at that moment in time, at least to the fan at home, um, it seemed like it was over like we'd already lost and there was no coming back from this.
3: All right. So let's talk about game six because, uh, uh this is really uh, the height of the, the apex of the drama because, uh, the Canadians scored a three to two victory and it wasn't without controversy. And, and maybe we sort of get into it. Um, we've mentioned Valerie, uh, uh, Kalimov, uh, the, the, uh, probably arguably the, the Soviet's best player. Um, you want to sort of describe this game, how a turning point happened, and what specifically happened that still—it's uh, not only you know, it controversial, it was just it—it uh, it, um, it was a, it was a turning point, and 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 not everybody feels that it was sort of a just a, a, an incident of play, but perhaps it was a, a targeting kind of situation. What, what, what that, happened that, in Game Six?
6: Well, that's an accurate description, and I guess uh, for Game Six. Um, very uh tight game again. Uh, Ken Dryden came back in net. He had struggled last two games, but he played very well this game and there was no scoring in the first period. Uh Soviets opened up the uh the game with a goal and then we scored just like the Soviets have scored uh four relatively quick goals in game 5. We scored uh, three very quick goals in a minute and 23 seconds in the second period to go ahead 3 to 1. And really a uh, What's odd about the play that you're describing, which is the infamous slash by Bobby Clark on Valerie Harlamov's ankle?
5: 3 to 1 for Canada as the puck goes back to Raglan, number 5. They're five aside, both teams a man short. Soviets move to the attack at center ice. Harlamov passes back. Here's a roller in front, a shot. It's knocked down by Bergman, who fell in front of it. And there's going to be. A penalty, I believe, on this one. Here's a mix up. as the uh, Soviet player shoved a bit. Now Bergman moves over to the Soviet player. Puts the uh, threat of a bit at Harlevov and Bergman. Well, that nearly started something. And as they don't understand English, it doesn't really mean whatever they're saying. But they're cooling them out. But there'll be penalties as a result of that. We'll see whether it's just Bergman or a player from each team.
6: Is yeah, Canada was in control of? I'd say Game Six, just like they had been in Game Five. Um, to uh, you know, I, I could I, In my mind, it was an unnecessary incident from every angle. One, highly unsportsmanlike. To you know, as described, hunt down one of their best players and to try and injure him. Uh, But as well, I I think it hurt Canada because it ended up giving him a penalty that he had to serve. Um, Canada got more penalties out of it. Um, It got the Soviets back into the game. And uh, they actually, Yakushev kind of stepped uh, up. He was, in my mind, he's probably my favorite player off the Soviet team. He was a big man. Uh, Bobby Hull would describe him in the 1974 summer series as the best left winger in hockey. Uh, and he stepped into that kind of that gap because Harlemov was injured. He did keep playing, and Harlemov was also playing game eight, but he wasn't the same. Um, it's been reported it, when Clark hunted him down, slashed him, basically skated across half the ice to slash him for no apparent reason. Um, he didn't break his ankle. Uh, I found out from Soviet uh, hockey historians and, and friends that he had a severe hematoma, what we would call it now, a very deep leg bruises, where you can imagine the whole leg is just black and blue and purple. And, and you can't skate on a leg very well. That's being injured that badly. Uh, but it didn't change the fact that it was a very unfortunate play, uh, infamous. It still resonates today. Um, me personally, I, I think it, I think it hurt team Canada. I don't think it helped us. Uh, Yakushev absolutely went wild over the last three games getting a lot of that ice time that, you know, probably Harlamov would have got. Um, so I don't think we advantaged ourselves by knocking Valerie out of the, out of the play uh, as well by getting the penalty, letting the Soviets back into the game. And here's the ultimate irony. A lot of people may not know about game six is the Soviets scored a second goal and they actually scored what many consider to be a third goal. And it was by Harlamov. There was a power play near the end of the second period, and there was a pass made over to him. And it looks like he might have deflected it up into the net. But everything happened so quickly, and the Soviet nets are different than NHL nets. They had this inner mesh that kind of hung down behind the bar. And the idea was to help capture pucks, so pucks that went in the net would stay in the net. What seems to have happened on this play is that it kind of the puck was deflected upwards into the corner and Dryden managed to scoop it out with his hand so quickly that the 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 referee missed it the goal judge missed it but what's interesting on that particular play if you uh, go to the footage of that the Soviet players are complaining and that's one thing that Soviet players didn't do very often was vehemently complain to referees uh, they they had a lot of respect for referees they didn't, you know, they didn't like to, uh, you know, argue with them. But several of the players were right up in the referee's face, saying, you know, that puck was in the net. It, it can't be confirmed definitively, um, but I suspect that there's a there's a good chance it did go in, and that would have changed things dramatically because obviously they would have tied the game 3-3, and who knows what would have happened after that? Canada still might have won it, but we'll never know. So uh, just a little side note on on what. You know how, as you said, what a a turning point this game was because Valerie... Valerie.
3: That's really interesting. But Kharlov is, you know, arguably. I, I guess it, it, to put it in perspective, I mean, this this is sort of he was like the king of players in the Soviet Union and at that time, and arguably, uh, and obviously, he he died tragically a, a few years later, 1981, in a, in a in an automobile accident. But he was he yeah. was revered, and and I don't know if he was the best ever player, but he's certainly lionized as being. One of the of the country's best ever players, not not only in, in uh, uh, you know in um, after his passing, but but during during this period of time, he was he was
6: spectacular. He's he's very well remembered for uh, fantastic goals, and you know in game one, game three on a uh, you know on a breakaway, um, exquisitely skilled, uh, very quick. One of those players, if I might make a slight comparison, uh, how Connor McDavid can do everything at full speed. He just doesn't skate extremely fast. He doesn't handle the puck extremely well. He does both. And as good as, you know, if you run down all the greatest players in, in history, uh, it's a rare combination to have a player who's, who's as fast a skater as he is a puck handler type of thing. And, and I think Valerie Qualifies in that respect. He, he he scored some incredible goals. You know, some of the most memorable ones you ever saw in the '70s, uh, in the '72 series, the '74 Summit Series, even in uh, the Super Series that that was to come in late '75, early '76. An amazing player. Um, certainly, his loss. We'll never know how much the team missed him. Uh, would they have won if he didn't get hurt? I don't know. Um I honestly think that Yakushev he exploded so incredibly. I think he might have had something like five points over the last two and a half games. So, you know, certainly losing Harlem off, it didn't didn't help them, but I don't know if it necessarily hurt them because of how well Yakushev played. But it just it's a play I'll I'll sum up. It's a play that never should have happened, you know, in the spirit and sportsmanship of of hockey and other sports. Um you don't purposely injure your opponent uh, on a non-hockey play. And he didn't even have the puck, really, at that time. So that kind of sums it up there.
3: Yeah, and, and Harlowoff obviously missed uh, Game 7, came back and, and not nearly at full strength for Game 8. But uh, before we leave that incident and we go into this Game 7 and 8, um, uh, Clark apparently didn't do this on his own, per se. Uh, there seems to be controversy about whether he was directed strongly suggested <laughs> to do this by by the bench.
6: Yes, it's Clark has said that um the assistant coach on the team was John Ferguson, who was a known uh pugilist of a uh, of the highest order in the sixties with the Montreal Canadians. Um but he was a tough nose player and he, you know the, the Clark has said that it was kind of suggested to him I think the way it was put to someone should go and tap them on the ankle. Um, And Clark felt that the statement that was being made, that it was being made to him because most of the other players on Team Canada would not be inclined to do so. Um, But I also read that uh, John Ferguson Sr. later on said, no, I never said anything like that. So it's one of those um, things we may never know the truth on. Uh, because we have come, you know, conflicting statements on it. But um, Clark has admitted he's done it, and, and you know, he. Uh, I think his famous uh, kind of comment is that if he'd never learned to lay the, uh, the lumber on somebody, he never would have got out of f- uh, Flon, Manitoba when he was a junior. So uh, that kind of you know uh, sums up, I guess, uh, his his outlook on it
3: yeah he also sort of seems to sort of uh, explain away sort of the physicality and, and at the time you know the, the Soviet teams didn't kind of fight really with each other. they sort of I guess in his words kind of got their points across in other ways and, and uh, I'm calling them cheap yeah. shots, but you know the physicality that um, you know that, that that gets retaliated by and, and arguably this is sort of maybe was his way I don't know if he's defending himself, but certainly expressing it certainly.
6: Uh, Absolutely. And we'll never quite fully know what it was like to be on the ice. Uh, One one thing, one observation I came to realize watching so much of the footage is um, when the games were played uh, over in Moscow, Canada was wearing their white jerseys. And if you look closely, it's amazing how many of the players, Ron Ellis comes to mind, had black marks all over their jersey which would be the tape marks from the sticks from the Soviet players that were hooking, hacking, whatever, towards him. So uh, the Soviets were not uh, physical in the way Canadians were. You know, we were more, you know, Canadian hockey tends to be more you know, I'm going to come up and I'm going to give you uh, maybe a cross jacket and I'm going to give you an elbow, but more obvious, I suppose, more direct. And I'm not uh, advocating it or defending it. Just that's kind of the style of play that um, that did exist back at the time. Soviet players tended to be a little more sly about theirs. Um, you know, there's uh, numerous reports of being spit, out, spit upon uh, Canadian players having – them come up and spit in their face which is kind of a hockey no-no as well if a guy is facing the boards generally you don't you know you're not supposed to come in and kind of cross-check them face first into the boards so there's kind of a different code or coda uh, perhaps that the Soviet players lived under and um, you know they did their thing and we did ours and uh, neither was right I would say and and. In the end, uh, I still feel that play, I would like to have seen Harlem off play simply for the fact that if you're going to beat an opponent, um, to me, you want to beat them honestly, for lack of a better way to put it. And uh, I don't think the play was necessary in any stretch of the imagination. But as you said, for some players, that's how, you know, that's kind of how they handled business back then. And uh, I guess that's, that's the way it
3: was. All right, another tight game ensued in game 7 and incredibly team Canada finds themselves after winning winning game 7 4 to 3. Do you want to talk about uh briefly before we get into game 8 and the sort of the uh the exclamation point of all this. How that game 7 was uh settled cuz we're in the third period it's tied 3-3 and a pretty interesting goal gets scored near the end of that that period to Give it to the Canadians.
6: Oh, very interesting. And, uh, you know, Paul Henderson earned his name, rightfully so, in the 72 series by... He, he conceivably could have been the game-winning uh, goal scorer in Game 4, if, depending on how that game had unfolded, because he did score the fourth goal. But he had scored the winning goal in Game 6. So you come to Game 7, and what's, what is... There's two things that stand out for me in Game 7. One is Tony Esposito was absolutely spectacular again without him I honestly don't think we win the series as as much as Dryden is remembered rightfully so for winning game eight game seven Canada seemed to be a little bit maybe tired or uh, they weren't as on their game as much and Tony Esposito played incredibly well and I think full credit to him for allowing you know the team to uh, right the ship as it were and so what happens is you go into about the last four minutes of the game and they're tied 3-3. And there's an incident that possibly ties into game six with Harlema's injury. The play I'm speaking of is that um, Bergman and Mikhailov get tied up behind the Canadian net. Uh, And what happens is that Mikhailov starts kicking Bergman with his skates. Now, you can't really see it in the game footage. It's it's unclear, but there are other angles that have been shown over the years, and he, he kicked him so hard, apparently he kicked him right through his plastic, you know, the the plastic front of his uh, shin pad and cut his knee. So if there's any no-no in hockey, one is slashing an opponent's ankle for no reason, two is kicking an opponent with your skates. So with what I find uh Interesting on that play is I wonder if the game would have ended up tied if it had never happened because all heck broke loose when that incident occurred. The game got delayed by several minutes. Um, Bergman got uh, major in roughing. So did Mikhailov. And by the time the death settled, um, they were four on four. And basically what happens is a minute later is arguably one of the greatest goals I've ever, sk- ever seen, which is Henderson basically gets the puck and moves up past the two Soviet forwards, manages to squeeze past the two Soviet defensemen, and as he's being hip-checked to the ice by Vasilyev, manages to uh, kind of hook the puck, snap it into the top corner past Trechak. Absolutely incredible goal at a crucial time.
5: Five of five, 220 left in the game, a 3 all time. Up goes into the corner, LaPointe shooting it back to the net to Savard, Savard is trying to get out, Lob to the head, Henderson going down, Got to the defense, goes right out of the scores! Henderson!
0: By his teammates, but this is an absolutely beautiful move by Henderson. And the goal judge was a little slow in putting the light on, but there's no question that puck was right up into the top and the back of the net. And Trent Jack really had no chance on that quick little maneuver by Paul
6: Henderson. And now you have a game eight where Canada has the potential to win the series. So, outstanding play, um, amazing moment.
3: Who could have ever imagined that after all of this, that we would be in a game eight and the series would be tied? I mean, you could not have scripted this any better. <laughs> and and from what I read, it, it it almost be. I mean, you were hinting before about how the 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 international uh, audience and attention for this thing. I I read a little bit about how various folks all across Canada were almost treating this like uh, it was like a mini holiday, sort of either to take off work or in anticipation of this game, a gathering in, you know, in train stations and watching, you know, it's almost like an Olympic final of some sort or some kind of national, uh, uh, you know, fervor around this. Uh, That's literally how much this was an event, not only in Canada, but uh, in certain pockets of the world, Um, just how important this, Supposed exhibition was becoming with this now tie breaking, supposedly game eight.
6: It was the ultimate in drama. As you say, it was, you know, Canada's supposed to win every game, and then it looks like we're going to lose, and then it looks like we have no chance of winning, and then somehow uh, there were signs put up, Mission Possible, now, you, know, it, you know, kind of a play on the TV series Mission Impossible, which was. Canada was not to be denied. Uh, so the fact that you know Henderson scoring in Game Seven tied the series at that point, and it's anybody's game for Game Eight. But Game Eight it, it kind of stands above all, and in in my mind it is still the most amazing you know hockey game I've ever seen. Uh, just for pure drama, for controversy, for um, exciting inex- inexplicable moments. And, uh, yeah, you're right. You, you've got a worldwide audience, estimated 100 million. I believe it was something like uh, between radio and TV. They figured that there could have been upwards of 16 million Canadians out of 21 million that were in the country at the time uh, that were watching or listening to it. It was it, it, We were joined together in a way that Canadians probably had never been outside of maybe fighting in a world war and, uh, you know, having that kind of bond. So it was exciting. Um, It was, I believe the game started uh, 1230. So it was in the afternoon of a work day. And uh, I was at school, I think grade two perhaps. And back then we had these TVs up on these stands, you know, standing like uh, probably six feet in the air and uh, like a 21 inch black and white. And we we were allowed by our teacher in the school to watch the game in school. And it was, you know, I still remember it. I may have been young, but absolutely, uh, you know, uh, incredible moment. Uh, never will forget it. And uh, in summary, the game had everything. You had moments of, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right terminology. The game started out with questionable refereeing. Um, you had a Canadian player look like he was going to club one of the referees uh, in front of a you know a live worldwide audience. Um, the refereeing settled down after that. They started playing hockey, and uh, it went back and forth and back and forth. And then the Soviets got ahead of us five to three by the end of the second period. And that mesh came into play again on us where. One of the shots hit the mesh, missed, bounced back to uh, you know a Soviet player, and he banked it in the net. So we're sitting there, 20 minutes to play, you know, seven games and two periods gone, and losing by two goals. It doesn't look good. It looks like we've gone this far only you know to not be able to uh, to reach our objective, and then the third period starts. And Canada scores early, gets us back into it. Um, just over uh, about seven minutes left to play. There's a huge, uh, you know, play in front of the Soviet net. Everyone's batting at the puck and falling down and that. And Canada scores again to tie the game. And then you have another incredible dra- dramatic moment where the goal light doesn't go on, and the the person who's uh, the goal judge is in fact. Uh, a uh, Russian referee of later years. we see him in the 74 series and 76 series. And uh, Eagleson in his, um, I guess, in his anger or excitement, uh, jumps down out of his seat and lands on some Soviet military guards because he wants to go talk to the, the goal judge about the fact that he hasn't put the uh, goal light on. And um, so what happens is King Ken is celebrating, and all of a sudden a lot of the team skates over to the one side of the rink and they start swinging their sticks at the military guards because what's happened is when eagleson jumped out of a seat and landed on them they start arresting them and they start hauling them out of the arena and one of the players sees that happening and skates over and they start jumping over the boards they start whacking the, the officials uh, and they get him back.
5: Park is trying to come out on the left side. A long pass to Phil Esposito going in. He shoots! Oh, right in front of the net. Esposito banged that. Here's another shot by Cornwallier. His goal! Canada has tied it up! The Canadian team grabbing each other there as the loose puck went around the net. And Canada tied it finally. Five Five. Esposito
0: makes an incredible individual effort on this goal. I can't say enough. Look at him fight for the puck. He gets it back out in front of the net after having missed it once himself. And I believe it's Ivan Cornoyer who gets the goal. Phil Esposito once, he digs for it now and he keeps fighting. He gets it out, it's shot, and Cournoyer puts the backhander into
5: the goal. Now we see a fight break. Now there's a A mix-up on the far side. The Canadian team are mixing it up with the spectators. And I believe Alan Eagleson is in on it over there as far as we can tell. And uh, the Canadian team are all over there. When that rump was started, whatever it was, nobody knows. But Canada tied that score at 12-56. And it appeared to be Cornille who got the goal. There's a wild scramble around the Soviet net. Apparently, uh, the police were trying to throw Eagleson out, and that's when the reserves from the Canadian team came over there to help out.
6: And there, on live TV, you see him being escorted across the ice. Um, hands being <laughs> thrown up in the air with the various digits being exposed and uh just you as you said you couldn't write this stuff um and it's all happening in front of the highest communist officials in the soviet union
3: that's wild and um it's uh I, so why was the goal light not lit was it just uh kind of was just was, was that on purpose or uh, you know, like was it sort of to be sort of a, yeah, kind of just to to irk the the, the Canadians and and maybe kind of sort of diffuse maybe something I, I whatever the drama. I mean, I, or was it? Uh, I'm just curious as to why that was why why it wasn't lit. And did the players keep playing, or was it was it ruled a goal on the ice, or, or what?
6: It, it, it was, I believe, it was ruled a goal, so there was no doubt about it. And the referee was uh, the infamous Victor Drombowski um well known for uh i guess not being necessarily the most objective (laughs) referee in hockey history but um i do recall him being asked about it and his response was uh, uh, flick the switch and late no work or something along those lines which is pretty amusing considering it worked before and after even on the uh, the game-winning goal um but uh yeah, I, I think you're probably right. It was him, maybe going. If I don't turn on this light, <laughs> maybe they won't notice. But uh, it, it did set off a whole series of fireworks that just were were remarkable for live TV. Well, and man,
3: you can you can you can imagine it only just spurred the Canadians that much further. Frankly, you can make the argument that maybe that uh, just uh, that only just got them more peaked and, and charged, outraged. charged up. Yeah,
6: absolutely. And, and sorry, I, I was just going to mention and, uh, another uh, thing that happened was, as the game resumed, so it's now tied five-five, and we still have, you know, uh, enough time left in the game, uh, just over seven minutes to to play. And in the background, you can see Soviet military guards walking in behind the benches by the dozens, if not the hundreds. So, whether that was done to, you know, kind of for crowd control or to psych out the players to send a message. Uh, I don't know, but um, it, it, is a, it is a bit unnerving when you see it because uh, it kind of suggests, you know, <laughs> you better not do anything else or uh, and even some of the Canadian players, we're, were not sure, are we going to get out of here when this is all said and done? Are they going to throw us, you know, in a gulag? So interesting, interesting moments, that's for sure.
3: All right, so true to the movie's form. We're talking down the last minute of the the, the last game. Everything's tied up. The game is tied. The series is tied. Again, you couldn't write this any better. Take us through that final minute. It's called the goal in Canadian lore, and um, I guess for good reason.
6: Yeah, you had Canada attacking the Soviet uh, Soviet zone in in waves. Um, They're desperate to, you know, they're not satisfied just to tie Uh, Just another side note, a Soviet official came over to the Canadian bench to tell them that if the game ended tied, they were going to declare themselves the victors of the series. So all of the coaches, all of the players are like, we can't just tie this game. Even though, you know, that would, a tie in the series would be, maybe at that point, um, you know, uh, a a well-earned result. They realized we're going to have to win this. We're going to have to score another goal. Uh, And so they're, they're pressing as hard as they can. And, but the clock is ticking down. Um, So what happens on this, you know, this famous play is that uh, Henderson wasn't out on the ice at the time. um, But he said later, he felt this sense that he had to go out there. He had to be there. And he actually called Peter Mahavlich off the ice. He was yelling at him, Peter, Peter, this isn't the coaches saying this. This isn't anybody else but Paul Henderson going, I have to get back on that ice. And I have to get that back out there now. So Peter Mahovlich comes off the ice. Henderson jumps on. And uh, Cornway fires the puck, kind of cross laterally into the left corner of the, uh, the Soviet, you know, zone. And what's interesting, and I find this, you know, it's one of those moments in time where you kind of look at it and it hits the boards and almost comes at, at an exact angle along the Soviet goal line. And the Anderson goes charging in to, uh, to get the puck and he gets hooked. And he literally spins around like a top and crashes into the boards. And the Soviet player... He goes to get the puck, and he fumbles it. And then, so he never actually gets gets any full control of it. Phyllis Vazito whacks at the puck, and it's right between, uh, or at, Tregiac's pads. In that instance, Henderson got up, got back to the front of the net, and gets that loose puck. And what happened is both Soviet defensemen, for some reason, kind of converged on the same side of the ice. So now there's nobody in front of Tretiak, and you've got Paul Henderson, all alone, takes a shot. Tretchak saves it, and Tretiak's now down and out, and the Soviet defenseman is racing across to try and hook or you know get a hold of Henderson. And just as he gets to him, Henderson manages to flip the puck past Tretchak's outstretched arm or under it. Uh, it's a little hard to tell into the net. 34 seconds left in the game, and. Canada's to score the winning goal it's it, it's um takes your breath away i guess in a sense and foster hewitt called the, the winning goal in his high-pitched little voice <laughs> he had and it was just sheer excitement and across the country canada explodes
5: and the barn has it out that way here's a shot henderson made a wild step wharton fell here's another shot right by the sword!
0: is father of the coach is 34 seconds left in the game an absolute pause scene over Paul Henderson as there should be but you can't underrate the effort again of Phil Esposito. he gets the puck he fights for it, he gets it back in front of the net but it's Paul Henderson who's part there he bangs at it and he beats Pre Jack's cleanly with an a fantastic goal. And this crowd is going wild.
3: Yeah, and I guess overshadowed in all that is Esposito, you know, and I, having sort of instigated the the, uh, the formation of that goal, also had a pretty damn good game overall too, uh, to kind of keep them in the game and uh, and arguably uh, punctuate uh, his contribution to the series too. But uh, but no doubt, I mean, the Henderson goal certainly is probably the exclamation point uh, of this and and. You know, it's let's wrap this up because this is—I mean, this is, I mean, uh, is just—you know—I this doesn't even do it justice, right? And there, there, there are a bunches of other books, and I know there's a lot of other documentaries and stuff. Uh And, and Lord knows, uh, I gotta now sit, probably watch all these, all these games. And shame on me for not doing so from YouTube uh, prior to this conversation. But can you somehow put all of this into context, especially for? Either Canadians of of a of a current generation that that weren't around at the time, or maybe have only heard this in spurts, maybe or maybe don't even know about sort of the importance of this, and or the American fan or sports uh, uh, enthusiast who, uh, perhaps because of the arrogance of of being an American, doesn't sort of understand the importance of of what this meant to the Canadian psyche generally, uh, as well as uh, sort of. Their, um, their pride in, in, in being a hockey and the hockey nation, I guess, of, of the world.
6: Oh, I'd be glad to do so. And in fact, just before I uh, I take that on, um did want to agree with you that Phil Esposito arguably played the greatest period of hockey by any Canadian hockey player, maybe any uh, player in an international game in history. He had a goal and two assists. He willed Canada to victory um, in that game. You know, down five three, win six five. Um, you know, he was the face uh, of the team by that point. And and we, as a country, um, I have uh, I think I have the advantage of being able to describe what it meant to Canada because uh, the U.S. has enjoyed a, a, an amazing moment as well, in, in a in a different circumstance, but in a similar situation. For um, you know, for the U.S. winning the 1980 Olympics, defeating uh, the Soviets four to three, the Miracle on Ice. Our Miracle on Ice was the Summit Series, and it, it, it's a defining moment, and it carries so much gravitas for us. Um, you know, the older generation, the younger one probably has a bit of difficulty uh, seeing it in the same way because international hockey is now ubiquitous; it's everywhere. But in a lot of ways, it's because of the Summit Series making, helping carve that path. Um, It was expected to be, you know, a walkover and it turned into drama, high drama of the highest order. And there's no, uh, no taking away the importance of the game from so many angles, you know, for hockey history. For um, international relations, because even though uh, you know there was still a cold war going on for the next two decades, it really did help create a a connection. Uh, the Soviet players were recognized for being great hockey players, not just amateurs but great hockey players in their own right. Canada was being uh, you know seen as being you know why are we the top hockey nation because we find a way to win. Even if it's three games in a row on uh, Soviet ice, um, even Russian fans today still speak in awe of that because it, it, it just shows the desire and the you know the will to win. And, and uh, that's very much how you know Canadians and Americans are a lot alike in that regard. And, and that U.S. Olympic team wasn't necessarily expected to win. A bit different perspective, but if anybody you know who's listening wants to find a comparator, I'd say, How do you feel about, you know, the US winning in nineteen eighty and not just being the Soviets but the Finns for the gold medal and then that sense of pride and that's how I would describe it. You just amazing elation, uh incredible relief and a sense of pride that has never left me. I still get chills. (laughs) I still get chills thinking about it because it was such a special moment in time.
3: Holy mackerel. That's a, that's a story and then some. Uh, you know, all that video um, is uh, available on YouTube. Every uh, one of the games, all those eight games, uh, is available. The original CBC broadcasts, uh, some snippets of which you uh, you heard uh, embedded in our conversation with Rich, uh, featuring the great Foster Hewitt calling the play-by-play and uh, former player uh, and sideman Brian Conacher. Um, uh, the... The history of the of the broadcasts were also very interesting too. If you grew up in the uh, the Northeast, uh, you and watched this series, you may remember different voices. Well, that's because uh, WSBK uh, Channel Thirty Eight, uh, an original super station up in Boston, uh, actually produced uh, the first four of those games. That the ones that were in Canada uh, with their own um, announcers. I think it was the Bruins announcers. As a matter of fact, Fred Cusick and and John Pearson on the call. Uh, the uh, latter four games, though. Um, fell through and pbs stations across the country in the united states uh wound up picking up that cbc feed so uh Messers, hewitt and conacher were uh, were certainly uh known entities here in the states as well as of course all across uh, canada but all those games are there uh i'll be probably uh deep diving into all of them the uh, the movie uh that uh, you had the clip from the beginning of the show uh once again it's called cold war on ice summit series 72 that originally appeared on NBC Sports Network back in 2012. Um, I know it's been on NHL Network uh, on occasion, and um, I just don't know where one can find it. It possibly could be in the new Peacock streaming service uh, in the sports uh, realm there. Uh, Maybe the NHL.com has a DVD of it. I'm not sure, Uh, but uh, keep an eye and ear out for it to set your DVRs or... Uh, fire up your TiVo or whatever to record it when it comes out, because it's that's a hell of a film as well. But regardless of what you do to watch and uh, and sort of learn more about the story, make sure that you run, not walk, to your favorite bookseller, whether that be Amazon or, or elsewhere, to get Rich's uh, great book. It is the ultimate companion uh, in terms of uh, stats and, and intrigue and stories and all kinds of things that um, go beyond the narrative and the actual play of the game itself. Uh, it's literally a um, a compendium of every single kind of fact you would ever want to know about what was going on uh, literally through the, enti- the, the before, the during and the after uh, of this series. The, again, the book is called 1972, The Summit Series, Canada versus the USSR, Stats, Lies and Videotape, The Untold Story of Hockey's Series of the Century. Of course, we encourage you to go to our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com Just search up this episode with uh, with Rich Bendel and uh, just click the link there um, uh, for the book and you will be whisked away to Amazon and you'll be giving us a few shekels uh, of love for the holidays to keep our lights on and our coal burning, so to speak. Sorry, that's not uh, very uh, carbon friendly. Uh, The wood burning fire. How about that? Yes. Uh, We'd like to uh, continue to bring you more episodes next year for sure. Uh, And we'd love to help pay some bills uh, with that. So we appreciate that. Uh, Before we uh, wrap up, I do want to tell you that uh, if you want to not only buy the book, you can also follow uh, Rich out there on uh, internet land. Uh, on Twitter, you can find him at seventy two, the number seventy two series Bendel, B E N D E L L two Ls, at seventy two series Bendel. Uh, you can find him on Facebook at uh, facebook dot slash seventy two series, and uh, he even will uh, accept your emails at the summit series nineteen seventy two at yahoo.com. So there you go. Buy the book uh, and um, follow Rich and. Uh, believe some more updates to uh, this book and and uh, the stories around it uh, are to come uh for us our website again is good that's uh, the place where you can find every episode that we've ever done and will continue to do uh you will find uh, all of our social media feeds uh, on twitter you'll find us at good seat still on instagram you'll find us at good seats still available uh you will find us on facebook as well for as long as we hang out there not much longer we think um What else? You want to send us email? Go ahead. Hello at GoodSeedStillAvailable.com. We look forward to your emails. We try to respond to all of them. Uh, Our apologies for being backed up, but we will get to them. Uh, What else? You want to get to our uh, you want to get our uh, email newsletter? You can do that, too. Just search for the little tab uh, on the website and you could just uh, give us your email and your name. And uh, we will get you uh, signed up for that weekly missive that we send usually every Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening what else Jerry Payne he's the man uh, with the uh, with the uh, the twiddling knobs the uh, the editorial goodness that he does for us each and every week Jerry Payne audio excellence say it loud say it proud um I think that is it for uh, this week we appreciate your listening to no end uh, hope again the holiday season continues to go well for you and uh, more fun stuff coming at you next week thanks for listening as always we appreciate it take care bye bye